Here's something new and exciting. Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World is now on social media with uplifting slash mind-bending updates throughout the week. So please follow me on Facebook at David Sachs Spiritual Tools or on Instagram, David Sachs Spiritual Tools. Hi, this is David Sachs and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. This talk today is dedicated to Bezad Emmanuel ben Moshiach. May his neshama have infinite, infinite Elias. So, this is Parsha's bow. And bow is, is spelled in a really intriguing way. And, and this Parsha is actually a big turning point in really the history of the entire world. Like each of these next um, Parshas of the Torah become more and more epic. Um, in Parsha's bow, we, we have the final three of the ten plagues, and we actually leave slavery. That's, that's actually happening in Parsha's bow. Like the actual journey out of Egypt is really, that narrative is really focused on in, in the next week's Parsha, in Beshalach, where we have the splitting of the sea, and then the following week we have the receiving of the Torah from Mount Sinai. So it's just going up and up and up and up. But the, the idea that we actually finally, after hundreds of years, get out of slavery um, and, and the, the ten plagues culminate, that's all happening in this week's Parsha. So, you know, you can make different arguments, which is the most epic Parsha. Uh, but, but, you know, you can could, you could certainly make a case for Parsha's bow. And, and the reason why I really want to emphasize the, the greatness of Parsha's bow is because of the, the name of the Parsha itself. Um, Bo is, is resonant. It means come. Bo means come. And in the, in the uh, context of the Torah, it means God is telling Moshe, come to Parah. But um, it's translated, Bo is actually translated as go to Parah. And the reason is because it's sort of addressing a, a kind of a, I don't know, a theological curiosity, which is how can God tell Moshe to come anywhere if God is already everywhere? So wherever, wherever Moshe goes, God is already there. So how can Moshe come somewhere where ultimately he already is with God everywhere? So you hear the question. So we, we sort of solve all these problems by just translating Bo as go, go to Paro, and now everything is very simple and, and solved. Um, however, the Medrash says something very, very deep, that, that really the way to read it is when God says, Bo Paro, come to Paro, what God is really saying is, come with me to Paro. And that's very, very deep and very, very resonant. And I'll tell you why. Because, you know, life is very scary. Going to Paro, who is one of the most evil people who ever existed, is, is fraught with danger and is, it's very challenging. So, so God is saying, come with me to Paro. You see, what, what are the scariest things in life? 
And probably you could give a lot of answers, but, but let me give you two. One of them is being alone. And another of the scariest things in the world is the unknown. Facing the unknown is really, on a very deep level, terrifying. So what God is telling Moshe is, come with me to Paro. Meaning to say, Moshe, wherever you go, you're never alone. And you know something? If you know that you're going with me, wherever you go, if you know that God is right there with you, everything in life is less scary. Um, and that speaks to us in our lives. Because we don't know what's going to happen in five minutes, much less what's going to happen tomorrow. And we've seen the world do somersaults, turn upside down again and again over the past year. We don't know. But just like God said to Moshe, come with me, God is saying the same thing to, to us every single day. You know, I, I actually, you know, believe that for so many of us, just getting out of bed in the morning, and I mean this quite literally, just the actual physical act of getting out of bed is heroism. Because so many of us, it's that fear is so palpable. Like, what's going to be? And, and all I can say is, just know that God preserved your soul while you were sleeping. And God is going to be with you throughout the entire day. You know, there's so many strategies for getting out of bed in the morning. And um, one, of the, one of the deepest teachings um, that I've learned over the past while was from the Aish Kodesh. And, and he asked this question, very central question to our existence, which is, is your body an extension of your soul? Or is your body something that covers over your soul? I'm going to say that again, because this really cuts to the heart of our time in this world. Is your body an extension of your soul? Or is your body something that covers over your soul? See, because how you answer that question is going to determine largely how productive we are in this world and how we see the world around us and how we view God. In other words, your body is just an extension of nature itself. Is nature something that covers over the existence of God for you so that all you see really is this world and you don't see God, you just see current events and the headlines and the bad news and and everything like that, and that's how you experience life through the lens of nature? Or is this world, is your body, is this world an extension of your soul? And what's, what's your soul? Your soul is a piece of God. <laughs> so in other words, are you just an aspect of God seeing more God in this world? Because if that's the case, nothing can stop you. 
If you're just an aspect of God seeing just surrounded by more God, then there are no barriers. So more than once I've lied in bed, laid in bed, and I've wanted to get out of bed. And somehow I've asked myself the question, is my body a covering over my soul or is my body an extension of my soul? And somehow that question is just, it's gotten to me. And I say, no, 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 my body is an extension of my soul. And then you know what happens the next second? The covers fly off and I'm out of bed. <laughs> so, so let's go deeper now. Let's go deeper. Because, you know, a lot of times you can look at the name of the Parsha and in a very deep way, the, the, the name of the Parsha will really capture the essence of the Parsha. So Bo, we said, means, we translate it as go, but it really means come. And the Medrash explains, God is telling us, come with me, wherever you go, we'll face the unknown together. You're never alone. But Bo is also spelled in the most epic way. It's, it's, it's very simple. It's the letter Bez and then the letter Aleph. So I'm sure that what I'm about to tell you is a very, very old Torah, but no one told me. So I'll just, just tell you what I thought, okay? But I can't be the first one to say this. So, so Bo is Bez Aleph. And remember, the whole world is changing in, in, in Parsha's Bo. So Bo is like summing up everything. We're getting out of slavery. It's awesome, right? The 10th plague has already been done. Remember, the 10 plagues were coming to strip away all the incrustation of idol worship that, were, that was clogging people's perception of the 10 spherot and of the 10 utterances of creation. So, so the the ten plagues were showing the entire world, showing the Jewish people, showing, showing that there's only one power and that's God. There were so many incrustations of idol worship on every level of creation. And the ten plagues stripped them all because everyone realized there is no power other than God. And that nature itself is not an independent power. There's only God. And I'll tell you something so deep. I saw this from Rob Frimmer. It's a teaching that he loves. He goes back to it over and over again. And I believe it's from the Zohar, which is that there are 10 depths to a person's heart, which is a teaching Godwin will get back to. And that the 10 plagues were coming to address the 10 depths of Paro's heart. Isn't that interesting? And not only that, but he said that the servitude in Egypt covered over the hearts of the Jewish people and that the ten plagues were coming to remove that, that overlay that was on Jewish hearts. In other words, to, to unclog our hearts So, so let's get back to the, the letters of, of Bo, because 
This is so epic. It's the letters Bez and the letter Aleph. And I want to say the following, that the letter Bez is not any normal Bez. The letter Bez is the Bez of Breshit. And the letter Aleph is no normal Aleph. The letter Aleph is the Aleph of Anochi Hashem Elokecha, the first letter of the Ten Commandments, the first letter of the first word that God utters when he gives us the Torah at Mount Sinai. The first thing that Hashem said was Anochi. And Reb Shlomo says in the name of the Kabbalists that God actually pronounced the letter Aleph and that that's the only thing God said at Mount Sinai. Isn't that unbelievable? Now, it's really unbelievable because if you, if you don't know it, you can't pronounce the letter Aleph. The letter Aleph is silent. So God pronounced the letter Aleph at Mount Sinai, and that contained the entire Torah. So the letter Bo, all of a sudden we have a lot more respect for the, for the word Bo, right? It's like, wait a second, Bo is not just Bez Aleph. It's the Bez of Breshit, the first letter of the entire Torah, and the first letter of the entire giving of the Torah and Mount Sinai. Okay, so now that we know what Bo is standing for, right? What's the significance of that? So it's very, very significant. It's basically summing up our entire mission in this world. Um, how so? So the Zohar says that God looked into the Torah and created the entire world. That the Torah itself is a blueprint of creation. That means the very first letter of the Torah is going to be your introduction to reality itself, to this world itself. And in fact, the Bez of Breshis, it's endlessly deep. Now, everybody knows that, that every letter in Torah has a numerical um, correlation. So what, what, what's the number for the letter Bez? And because it's the second letter of the Olive Bez, it's, it's the number two. So what does two stand for? So, so remember, this is the first letter of the Torah, which is the blueprint of creation. So it's going to be describing creation in the deepest way. The first letter has to, right? So the letter Bez, the number two, stands for all the duality in this world. Heaven and earth, good and evil, body and soul, the spiritual and the material, male and female, this world and the next world, the hidden and the revealed. And then, perhaps on the deepest level, the letter B stands for free choice. Because what's free choice? I can either do this or I can do that. Two different paths before us. That's free choice. So all of this, and more, by the way, is captured with the letter Bez. So, so again, Bez stands for all the duality, or maybe to put it in even more sort of strong terms, all of the confusion of this world. Because Basically, with our eyes, with our two eyes, and that's another level of, of the letter Bez, our two eyes, 
with our two eyes, we see a multiplicity of powers in this world. We think our boss has power over us and our neighbor has power over us and our spouse and our kids and everyone. It's a laundry list of everyone who has power over us. But there's only one power. All there is is God. God is the only power. And so that brings us to the Aleph of Bo and our mission in life and why this word Bo is so potent because it represents our whole mission and the whole nature of reality. Because the journey is, is that we're born into this world defined, characterized by the letter Bays, defined by all of this duality and all of this confusion and all of this perception of multiplicity around us. That's what we're born into. And what we have to do, our mission in this world is amidst all of the duality, is to find the unity. Because the letter after Bo, the letter after base is Aleph, which stands for one, which is the oneness of God. And it's not just the oneness of God. It's the oneness of God as he himself expressed in the giving of the Torah itself. The Aleph, that begins the giving over of the Torah, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God, your God. So again, in Bo, we see the Bez of Breshis, the Aleph of the first letter of the giving of the Torah. And our mission in life, to exist amidst the base, amidst the duality, and for us to find the unity behind everything. As Rabbi Matasyahu Solomon said so amazingly, he said that he bought a blender for the kitchen with his wife, and it came with a 32-page set of instructions. And and they said back to each other, if a blender comes with a 32-page set of instructions, is it possible that this world doesn't come with a set of instructions? And of course it does. That's, that's the Torah itself. The Torah is the user's guide to life, the user's guide to creation. Now, the letter Bez has another meaning. The rabbis see a, a similarity between the, the word Bez, which is the name of the letter, and the word Bayit, which means house. Because this world is one big house. Now, imagine the following example. Imagine you know someone who's a great philanthropist, very giving, very rich, very loving, and they say to you, you know something? I am going to build you, just because I love you, I'm going to build you an enormous house, an enormous house, right? And you you can't imagine, what? Yeah, you can, what? So they build this huge, huge house. And then they come to you and they say, it's ready, it's ready. And they take you into the house in the middle of the night and they put you in the house and they lock the door and they don't tell you where any of the light switches are. (laughs) And you're walking around the house 
tripping over things, slamming your head against tables. You you don't know where you are or what the layout is or how to turn on the lights. Does that make any sense? Would a person actually do that? Would a person actually build you a house and not tell you where things are? (laughs) Or how to find your way in it? But allow you to just stumble through the darkness? Does it make any sense? So how can God put us in this world with all the duality, with all the confusion, and not tell us how to get through it? Not turn on the lights. You know, one of the names of one of the names of Torah we say is Or Torah. Torah Or. Like I can't even tell you if you if you go into a library, how many books are called Torah Or 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 Torah, meaning the light of the Torah or the Torah's light. There are like dozens of book with books with this name. Because Torah is the light. In fact, on a very deep level, the Bnei Yisachar brings such an awesome Torah. When it's talking about the initial light of creation, it's, it refers to it in Hebrew as Es Ha'or. Es Ha'or. And Es Ha'or, which means the light, is the gematria, is the numerical equivalent 613. <laughs> so the question is, where did God hide that initial light of creation? Well, Es Ha'or is 613. He put that light into the Torah itself. You know, if we only had the eyes to see it every time we opened up a book of Torah, do you know how bright the the room would become? (laughs) Like this awesome light shining every time we learn. And that's God guiding us through this world. It has to be. It can't be any other way. Nothing else makes sense. So, so I referred earlier, and I want to return back to this thought, because I think it's an amazing, amazing thought, the idea that each of our hearts has 10 levels to it. So let's, let's explore that idea for a moment. Do you, do you know what that means? That means that each of us is phenomenally deep. In fact, we're so deep that we ourselves don't fully know ourselves. Which, on the one level, is exciting because we really don't know just how much we're capable of doing. We're capable of doing things far beyond we realize. One of my favorite stories is Reb Shlomo played a concert for steelworkers in St. Petersburg. And afterwards, they presented him with flowers. And his reaction was, You know, God's dreams for us are deeper than our dreams for ourselves. He says, because never in my wildest imagination would I imagine that I would play a concert for steelworkers in St. Petersburg and be presented with flowers. So we we don't really even know what we're capable of. That's that's another aspect of this 10 levels to the heart. But let's approach it from another example also, a more challenging kind of approach, which is that we ourselves don't really know 
how we're going to react. And sometimes we might really disappoint ourselves. And there's a story that illustrates this, which I really love. And I'll just tell you a story leading up to the story. Um, I, I, I was invited to, to speak at a comic book convention to be on this panel. It was in downtown LA. It was called, the, the name of the comic book convention was called Kamikaze. Okay. And it was about, um, this panel was about faith and you had different people from different faiths. And on this panel that I was on, there were about seven people on the panel. And I think there were, it was in a pretty large auditorium room. And I think that there were maybe seven people in the audience. <laughs> there, there may have been six people in the audience. I think that it's possible that there were actually more people on the panel than in the audience. And, and everyone in the audience was, was actually dressed up like a, like a superhero. It was, it was pretty, pretty, pretty funny. Um, anyway. So, so, uh, so I was the last to, to be asked the, the first round of the, the question. And, and they, the question was, what is a hero? Right. And I don't, I don't know why, but I, you know, turned to this like scattered crowd of people dressed like, you know, Wonder Woman and, and Batman and Superman. And I said, I'm going to tell you a Hasidic story about the Sanzer Rebbe. <laughs> and and, and uh, here's how the story goes. The Sanzer Rebbe was, was, um, was standing by his window. And one of his Hasidim, one of his followers, walked by and he calls him over. And, and he says, if you were walking down the street and you saw a bag of money, what would you do? And he said, Rebbe, it's a, it's a big mitzvah to, to return an item like that. And, and I would do everything I possibly could to make sure whoever owned that got their money back. And the Sansa Rebbe says to him, fool! And he sends him away. He sees another follower of his and he calls him by the window. And he says, if you saw a bag of money on the road, what, what would you do? He says, Rebbe, I'm, I'm, in, I'm embarrassed to tell you, but times are tough. And, you know, I'd probably look both ways. And if, if, if no one saw me, I'd probably keep the money for myself. <clears throat> and, he, and the Sansa Rebbe says, wicked. And he sends him away. And then he sees another follower and he calls him over and he asks him the same question. And he says, Rebbe, I'd like to think I would do the right thing, but I don't know until I'm in this situation. And the Rebbe said, that's the right answer. You see, what does it mean that we have 10 depths to our heart? That means that on some very profound level, we ourselves don't even know how we're going to react in certain situations until we're in that situation. So, so the question is, how can we ensure that we're, when we're in those situations, 
that that we do the right thing. So I I haven't got a a definitive answer for you. I'm sure there are a lot of techniques, a lot of tools that you could use to do the right thing, you know, when you're confronted like that. But um let me let me just uh suggest something. See, I think I think part of the problem is is when we when we leave God's side and then all of a sudden we're confronted with a test, we've sort of put us ourselves into this mindset that God isn't with us every single moment because we ourselves departed from God in terms of our consciousness earlier than that. And so we have to sort of, so to speak, reacquaint ourselves with God <laughs> and confront this challenge all at once. But what if we've never left God's side? <laughs> then, then we do the right thing because we never left God's side to begin with. See, living with God, that's, that, that is the challenge. And the crazy thing is, is that, you know, the Kutzka Rebbe says something so radical, but it's so true. He said, it's possible to turn mitzvot into a vodazor, into idol worship. Now that sounds very extreme, because we know that mitzvot are the opposite of idol worship. So what are you talking about? How can you make a mitzvah into idol worship? It's impossible. So, but what the Kutzker Rebbe is saying is psychologically very, very astute. He said that some people are so focused on the mitzvah that they forget about God. And that they're just serving the mitzvah itself. You know, if, if you go to a golfing clinic, not that I've ever been to one, by the way, but if you go to a golfing clinic, they're going to tell you that you have to follow through with your swing. You know, if you go to the batting cage and you've got like a batting coach, they're going to tell you you've got to follow through with your swing. That that somehow that follow through at the end is where a, a lot of the power comes from. So applying that idea, what does it mean to follow through in the best sense of the way with the performance of a mitzvah? It means that you're using the mitzvah as a way to connect to God. And that you have your mind on God and your heart on God and your soul on God during the beginning, middle, and end of the process. And what the mitzvah allows you to do is to supercharge that connection with God so that you never leave God's side, even during the performance of a mitzvah, which is possible to do. As strange as that sounds, and by the way, it happens all the time. You know, I, I, I don't know who said it, but one of the you know, in the in the early days when there was this, now you don't see it so much in, in the Jewish world, but 
but there used to be quite a rivalry between the, the Hasidic world and what they call the Misnagdid world, right? Um, you know, I remember hearing Rabbi uh, Beryl Wine describe those, those two names of these opposing camps. Uh, Hasidim means the, the, the righteous ones, the pious ones. And Misnagdim means those who are against the pious ones. And so he asked a rhetorical question. He said, who do you think gave the various groups their names? Who set the agenda? Clearly the Hasidim. Because it's the Hasidim and those who are against the Hasidim. I don't know that the, 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 the other group would necessarily appreciate the name that, that was given to them, right? But anyway, so someone once said, and it was, again, an interesting insight, um, just whether it's accurate or not is not the point. The point is, is that such a thing is possible. He said that, that the Misnagdim, really, their relationship to God is between them and the Shulchan Aruch, between them and the Code of Jewish Law whereas the Hasidim have their eye on God directly. And again, this isn't to put down anyone, but to sensitize ourselves in terms of our own everyday life, that a person can really fool themselves. Again, the question that we're dealing with is, how can I know that when given the the 10 depths of our heart, that on some profound level, I don't even know myself, how do I know when I'm confronted with a challenge that I'm going to pass the challenge? And the answer is, again, on a deep level, one level, is that if I never leave God's side, then I'm not going to be surprised when this new challenge comes my way. Because it's not going to be a new challenge. So if I never leave God's side, then it's not going to be a new surprise. But a person can fool themselves. They can say to themselves, you know, I'm so religious, quote unquote, whatever that means. I'm so religious. How did I find myself in that in that hotel room? <laughs> it just it just happened. I was minding my own business and all of a sudden I'm in a hotel room. How'd that happen? Well, what I would suspect is that that somehow they had left God's side while they were doing mitzvahs. And that such a thing is possible. And so everything then boils down to what is the nature of my relationship with God? And I'm telling you, Rebbe Nachman says it, I don't know if anyone says it better than Rebbe Nachman. He says a person has to talk to God like they're that like he's their best friend. You have to talk to God like he's your best friend. There's no other way. And again, I I've mentioned this, but I just want to tell you the, the primacy of this thought. How do you make a friend? Like what's the like how how does it happen? So so I'm gonna just Give you just just an example, but but I want you to really hear it. It sounds very simple, but it's profound. 
Let's say you go to a party or whatever it is, and you know, you're pouring a soda and the someone else there getting some chips, and then you one of you strikes up a conversation and you're amazed. You just keep on talking with each other. You've got this in common and that in common and this interests you both and that interests you both and you both have an opinion on this situation and you're laughing and you're interested and you want to hear more and then you go back home and you say to someone, you know, I, I think I just made a new friend. Well, how did you make that new friend? Through talking. <laughs> There's a direct correlation between talking and making a friend. Do you, do you understand? It's it, again. It it sounds simple, but it, it's it. This is this is major news here. So what Rabbi Nachman is doing is he's applying this to our most primary relationship in the world, which is God. If you want to make friends with God, if you want to be best friends with God. There's only one way to do it, and that's through talking to God. Now, here's where people get a little bit confused because they don't understand how far-reaching this is. And sometimes I get the question, how can I daven better in shul? When I'm in shul, how can I connect more? Well, what I always tell anyone who asks me that is that if you want to make sure that when you're in shul, you're davening better, you're, you're, you're praying better, make sure the 23 hours of the day that you're outside of shul, that's the primary place of praying. <laughs> if you don't know that, <laughs> then good luck. You know? So, so a lot of people think, that when they leave shul, they leave God. When they leave shul, they leave the opportunity to talk to God. It's crazy. Outside of shul is the main place to talk to God. And there is no bad time to talk to God, except maybe in the bathroom, because it's just not respectful. God is everywhere. But it's, it's, it's we, as a sign of covet, as a sign of honor, we, we don't pray there. But, you know, Rebbe Nachman addressed this question himself, and he gives a fantastic answer. He says, when a person's in the bathroom, you know what they can do? They can be longing to be talking to God. <laughs> that you're allowed to do. <laughs> so, so even then, even then, you're not leaving Hashem's side. So, so I mentioned that, that, the, that we've got these 10 plagues. And I want to go over uh, a point, um, which, is, which is this narrative from the Chidush Erim. But I want to focus in on, on the aspect of God speaking the world into creation. Um, so, so the Chidush Erim says that there are these 10 utterances that God spoke the world into being with, and then there are the 10 plagues, and then there are the 10 commandments. So you have 10, 10, and 10, 
and then you have the ten depths of the heart, and then you have the ten sphere out. So that's that that's an amazing that, that that's that's an amazing process. Like what is going on? So just very simply, there were these ten utterances of creation, and the whole world knew that there was only one God. But over the generations, people started identifying with what they could see with their eyes. And what they saw with their eyes was nature. And so more and more, they started relating directly to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and to the Nile River and to all these things. Because they understood that these were emissaries of God. This was how God channeled his power into the world. And then after time, they forgot about God altogether. That, that's how the Rambam explains it. And now where you had 10 utterances, which were correlating with the 10 spherot, right? The 10 primary energies of creation. Now they're all encrusted over with idol worship from the bottom all the way to the top. And if you look at the progression of the plagues themselves, they start with the bottom and they go to the top, right? They start with um, they start with the Nile River, which is, you know, at ground level. And then they go up to darkness and locusts. They go start to go all the way up into the heavens. So as each plague came, a different false notion that there was another independent power in the world became broken in the world. And after this process, God now reveals his will with the Ten Commandments, with the Torah itself. In other words, not just that God exists, but that God has a plan for us. As Reb Shlomo said so beautifully, that when God gives us the Torah, he's allowing us to dream God's dreams and to pray God's prayers. With the Torah, we can dream God's dreams and pray God's prayers for creation. So, so that's what's going on with all of the tens. And that's also a bit of instruction to us again on a very deep level of how we can ensure when we're in a surprise situation that we're going to do the right thing. Because if we can eliminate the notion that there is anything other than God in the entire world, then when we get to the bottom 10th depth of our hearts, we know we won't be fooled by our eyes. Right? We'll know what's right and what's wrong. And we won't lose sight of, 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 of what God wants with us because we'll have never have left his side and with our eyes, we'll, we won't see anything other than God. So, let me just conclude 
but on the same subject. I'm always struck, and I think it's very, very beautiful. This week we're going to read Parshas B'Shalach, which is the splitting of the Red Sea. And it's, it's sort of like the most famous miracle in the whole Torah, right? The splitting of the Red Sea, that's, that's like, that defines what a miracle is. And every year it comes out on the calendar as the same time as Tubishvat, which is the new year for trees, which is talking about nature itself. And it seems like nature is kind of like the opposite, right? Because nature makes perfect sense. There doesn't seem to be anything miraculous at all about nature. Like think of the growing of a tree and, and fruit off a tree, which is what Tubishvat is all about, okay? Which is which is that, like, nothing makes more sense than a tree. I've got fertile ground. I've got a seed. I cover over the seed. The seed disintegrates, right? And roots come out of it. I water it. The sun is shining on it. And over time, like, something comes out of the ground. Unbelievable. And then it grows and it grows and it grows. And over a period of years, fruit comes out. And then eventually, right, after the specified time, you do the mitzvah of Orla. And then you can eat the fruit. What, what could make more sense than fruit from a tree? It's totally logical. It strictly follows the laws of cause and effect. But let me ask you something. If you were sitting at the kitchen table and you've got a pencil, right? And, and you're maybe just writing a list for yourself and you put the pencil down on the table. What's a pencil? It's a piece of wood. And you walk out of the room and then you walk back in and imagine there are five grapefruits hanging from your pencil. <laughs> You'd be like, what is going on? It's a pencil. It's a piece of wood. And here are these five juicy grapefruits growing off of my pencil. It's a miracle. And if you think about it, you know, the laws of genetics, children, for the most part, look like their parents or their grandparents. You know, you can see, you can see in the child, the face of the father, the mother, the grandfather, grandfather, you can see it. Does a juicy orange look anything like a piece of wood? I mean, you talk about fruit from a tree, fruit like, like you know, poetically, we, we talk about children as our fruit, right? Does, does the child of the tree look anything like the parent? It's completely miraculous. So what is standing in our way from seeing the miracle? God is playing a big trick on us. And you know what that trick is called? You ready? It's called time. Time makes us think that the miraculous is normal. <laughs> but I work so hard on it. Oh, you, you work so hard on it. And where did you come from? <laughs> where did your hands come from? As... As Rabbi Green would say, I, I love this to pieces. He would say, those are your eyes? Really? They belong to you? 
Where's the receipt? That's your nose? Okay, where's the receipt? <laughs> so, so God gives us, so to speak, kind of like a little wave, a little, a little wake up by making every year the splitting of the Red Sea, the ultimate revealed miracle, happen at the same time as Tubishvat, which is also completely miraculous and telling us that everything that happens around us is totally miraculous. And as I've shared with you before, the Ramban, no less, one of our greatest Torah authorities, said that anyone who doesn't understand that every single moment in life is a miracle has no share in the Torah of Moshe. I mean, you can't say it any more powerfully than that. All there are are miracles. You see, the, the problem and the reason why we don't see it is we think the baseline of the world is quote-unquote normalcy. <laughs> but we exist amidst God, which means the baseline is infinity. <laughs> We're already entering into the infinite, and everything is founded, if that's a word, on the infinite. You know, one of my favorite, favorite stories in the Gomorrah is sailors are on a ship and they, they see an island and they go, okay, let's hop in a boat. Let's have a little picnic, a little barbecue on the island. And they, they get to the island and they light a fire. And all of a sudden the island turns upside down because it was a whale sticking out of the water. And people thought it was an island. What's your foundation? What is your foundation in life? Because this is going to the answer the question of how you respond when you're put in a challenging situation that became unexpected. What is your foundation in life? You? Your own intelligence? The solidity of the ground that you're standing on? Good luck! <laughs> it's only God. And when we know that, we'll talk to him. We'll never leave his side. And any situation that we're in, and, and we're not supposed to ask for tests, because it says we have actually a spiritual rule, believe it or not. God gives you the power to pass any test that he gives you, except for those tests that you ask for yourself. <laughs> so we don't ask for tests. But if we make God our foundation because we understand that the only thing there is is God. If we understand that our life in this world is the word Bo, the Bays of Breshis followed by the Aleph of Anochi Hashem Kecha, the first letter of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, that this whole life's expedition is navigating through all the duality, all the, through, through all the confusion, and finding oneness in absolutely everything and everywhere. Then we'll be standing on solid ground always, because we'll be standing on the infinite itself.
What follows now are some questions and so answers. So what does it mean to ask for a test? So we, we learn that out from um, David Melech from King David. So, so the Talmud uh, reports a, a conversation between uh, King David and Hashem. And King David says that we begin our prayer, God of Avraham, God of Yitzchak, and God of Yaakov. And David Melech says, how come it doesn't say God of David? And so God said, well, I gave them tests and they passed them. And, and, and you haven't. And King David says, well, give me a test too. And so God says, not only will I give you a test, I'm going to tell you exactly what the test is going to be. It's going to be through a woman. And that was Bathsheba. And it says he looked out the window and on a nearby building on the roof, there was a curtain covering the top of the building and a breeze came or an arrow came and knocked down that curtain and there was Bathsheba ready to go into the mikveh, dressed for the mikveh, meaning to say, not dressed for the mikveh. And that's what David Melech saw and the rest is history, so to speak. So, so even though the Gomorrah says that anyone who says that David Melech did something wrong um, is mistaken, there was an appearance of wrongdoing. And at David Melech's level, that appearance of wrongdoing is called wrongdoing. And how did that whole situation come about? because David Melech asked for a test. And from that we see that if you ask for a test, you're not necessarily, or you aren't given assistance for passing the test. So that's why um, a person should be very uh, sensitive to how they express themselves. And I often will say after something that I've said, I'm not asking for a test. <laughs> And it's a, a good thing to actually say because it can save you. Um, so what does it mean to ask for a test? So we, we learn that out from um, David Melech from King David. So, so the Talmud uh, reports a, a conversation between uh, King David and Hashem. And King David says that we begin our prayer God of Avraham, God of Yitzchak, and God of Yaakov. And David Melech says, how come it doesn't say God of David? And so God said, well, I gave them tests and they passed them. And, and, and you haven't. And King David says, well, give me a test too. And so God says, not only will I give you a test, I'm going to tell you exactly what the test is going to be. It's going to be through a woman. And that was Bathsheba. And it says he looked out the window and on a nearby building on the roof, there was a curtain covering the top of the building. And a breeze came or an arrow came and knocked down that curtain. And there was Bathsheba ready to go into the mikveh dressed for the mikveh, meaning to say, not dressed for the mikveh. 
And that's what David Melech saw, and the rest is history, so to speak. So, so even though the Gomorrah says that anyone who says that David Melech did something wrong um, is mistaken, there was an appearance of wrongdoing. And at David Melech's level, that appearance of wrongdoing is called wrongdoing. And how did that whole situation come about? Because David Melech asked for a test. And from that, we see that if you ask for a test, you're not necessarily, or you aren't given assistance for passing the test. So that's why um, a person should be very uh, sensitive to how they express themselves. And I often will say after something that I've said, I'm not asking for a test. <laughs> and it's a a good thing to actually say because it can save you. Okay, great. So, so let me just um, just for everyone who who uh, who just heard the question, let me let me just uh, re-ask the question. So, one of the most beautiful things is, um, like, we I, I don't know if we even really fully appreciate it, which is. We know we say, okay, we know what we're supposed to say when we wake up in the morning. But do you understand that the rabbis are answering one of the deepest questions a person can ask, which is, God, you gave me this power of speech. What should the first thing I say in the morning be? <laughs> do you understand that the rabbis are answering one of the deepest questions and we don't even realize that we have this question? Right? So, so, so the first thing that we say when we wake up in the morning is thank you. And, you know, I was told, and it's, it's these words, ani, right? But I was told something I think is very awesome, that grammatically, in Hebrew grammar, um, that actually it should be ani modeh. I thank you. So why did the rabbis give us this phrase to say that is actually ungrammatical? And the answer, I think, is very beautiful because we start with the word mode, which is to thank, instead of starting with the word ani, which is I. And because the, how could I begin each day with the word I? Can you imagine? Like, I just woke up and I'm already talking about myself. <laughs> it's like, yo, yo, give it a rest. I know, I know you just woke up. Give it a rest. You know, it's so, so the, we have so much difficulty with this concept of I and, and, a lot of ways to get out of this trap of your own ego, of your own sort of existence, is to transcend it from the very first moment, to be outwardly directed. And so the rabbis are giving us this unbelievable fixing for our lives, that the very first thing that we say when we wake up is outwardly directed and from a place of gratitude. Or as Miriam, I know, you love to say, having an attitude of gratitude. 
right? So, 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 so this phrase, first we thank God, and I'll tell you another level, which is, which is even deeper in its own way. Moda doesn't just mean thanks, it also means I admit. Which means, think about this, this is deep, think about it. It means that I admit that there's something other than me in this world, God. You know, a person can wake up just surrounded by their own problems, just thinking of themselves. And it's like, the first thing I have to do in order to thank you, God, is to admit that there's something other than me in this world. And so the words and God in his endless genius combines the two words, admit and thank, into the same word, and so that we're saying both of these concepts simultaneously. I admit that there's something other than me, and you know what? I'm so grateful for everything that you're doing for me, God, and you know what? I'm so grateful that there's something other than me in this world. You know, because if it was only me, forget it, forget it. I can't go on. I can't go on. But when I know that there's something so much more than me in this world, then how can I roll up my sleeves and how can I help? And the end of the phrase is Raba Emunasecha. How great is your faith? So what is the pronoun? Who who's the your? So so this is the question. So the Alexander Rebbe. I think, is giving pshat. And the Alexander Rebbe is saying, how great, we're saying to God, how great is your faith in us? Meaning to say that we begin every single day, the first words we say is, God is telling us, I know that you can do it. You believe in me? Well, I believe in you. And boy, do we need those words to begin the day and to get out of bed. We say in God's name every single day, I believe in you. God is telling us he believes in us. And and with that, we can rise out of bed like a lion to serve our maker. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.